0: I think it's pretty telling that it was the pediatric
1: residents doing it. Yeah, they have more fun. Don't they have more fun? I thought they had more fun. I think they
0: do. They seem to have more fun. (laughs) They have toys.
1: (laughs) They have them doing.
0: Welcome, everybody, to this episode of MedLibs Miscellany. I'm Tracy Shields. And I'm Carrie Price. And today, I think we're going to be talking about teaching and instruction and all of those fun things that we do in library land. You think? So, I think so. You (laughs) think we're going to talk about that? Let's talk about that. Yeah, I think it's a great plan. (laughs) Since there's been such high demand to hear us talk about things.
1: (laughs) So, Carrie, do you teach and do instruction? Oh my gosh, do I ever. I wanted to talk about this in our podcast today because I think a lot of librarians come into the profession. And something I hear over and over again is, we are never taught to teach. It's not really something that's addressed in library school. And unless you have a background in education, you aren't given the tools that you need to really become a good teacher. And I've been working on it for a long time. And I still don't always consider myself a good teacher. I've definitely had some disasters. But I do feel like I have some lessons learned. How about you? Have you had? Some lessons learned?
0: Oh, I've definitely had lessons learned. And it's funny you should mention that we're not really taught how to do instruction or anything like that. But I think the program that I went to it way back in the day was pretty good about it. And they had a class that was specifically about doing a library instruction. And it may be because they had a large segment of the library school that focused on school media center, you know, the librarians Mm -hmm. for school media that often, I think they have to have a teaching degree as well. So I think because of that, there was actually some, there were multiple classes that you could take back then on instruction. And I took one and some of it was actually theory, like pedag- pedagogical mm-hmm. theories. Mm-hmm. Did I say that right? I think I said that right. Um, how, it, how? What is it? Pedagogical? Pedagog. I can't. Teaching <laughs> theories. Think. You know, ways that you can teach and give instruction. Yes. And I don't really remember a lot of it, but I do remember that... We had to give multiple presentation and instruction sessions as part of that
1: class. Wow, that's pretty amazing.
0: And at the time, I didn't really like the class, but I learned a lot, including, like, things not to do. And did you
1: learn things you could take into your jobs that you have found really helpful?
0: Some things. I think the the most important thing I learned in that class is that you should always be prepared for things to go wrong.
1: Totally.
0: You know, especially with technology. Yes. that The computer doesn't work. That the projector you doesn't the work. don't have internet. <laughs> that you should always have a backup. If your slides, for some reason, don't work, you should always have some type of mm-hmm. backup plan. And that has definitely paid off. That's. Because there have been multiple times where things have gone wrong during an instruction session. Mm-hmm. And I've had to rely on. Some of those lessons. Mm -hmm. What about you?
1: Yeah, I'm just thinking about the, I had a really big, um, kind of a big deal one early on in my career. And I got there and there was no internet. (laughs) So I learned that lesson that you should always have a backup or some screenshots or something. Yeah, and that happens Mm -hmm. from time to time. Or I've gotten there and like the computer was completely down. So what do you do then? You have to get creative and sometimes you just have to chalk it up to say, oh, well, I'll do better next time or, or, you know, I'll have a different plan. Yeah. Do you have, do you have a, like the absolute worst Mm -hmm. case example? Probably that one. Yeah, probably that one where I showed up planning to show database demonstrations in the internet in the classroom wasn't working and there was nothing I could do about that. This was like before tech help was just a number away, you know? So I couldn't. Mm-hmm. It, so it was just over. <laughs> yeah. How about. Yeah.
0: I-, I had one, I had one time where in the middle of the demo for teaching PubMed, the internet mm-hmm. went out and the computer just stopped. Mm-hmm. Like the computer just blacked out and there was not another computer so i we were waiting for it to maybe restart or do something and there was a like a whiteboard at the front and so i was like you know what oh wow let me show you pubmed on a whiteboard and i just from memory kind of blocked out like where you click on Mm -hmm. things in pubmed (laughs) and you know i showed you know, I wrote out how to construct a, a search, conceptualization basically, until um, my co-worker was fiddling with the computer to see if we could get the computer wow. back so it wasn't like for the whole session but it was a temporary thing yeah. and I mean you just that was probably the worst one mm-hmm. that or getting um, the fire alarm in the middle oh I've had morning. that
1: happen too actually but it was actually it was okay it didn't we just got back and started back from where we stopped so it worked out fine mm-hmm. yeah you just cut out a little part and skim down mm-hmm. some other areas to, if
0: you're if there's mm-hmm. a time factor you probably do a lot more instruction than i do and i know you definitely do instruction for different groups than i do
1: i feel like mine's kind of my experience has been unique because i was not an education major And I definitely started off as a very shy person who was so nervous to do any form of public speaking, and then 10 or 12 or something years in, I feel like I've gotten a lot better. So I wanted to talk about my experience um, at my first job in medical librarianship. I was mostly teaching faculty, fellows, residents, nurses, and other clinicians, and you had to find ways to use that time because often I was given just 15 minutes or less. And so instead of seeing it as an instruction session, I saw it as a way to get FaceTime to somehow communicate that I'm not your stereotypical, that none of us are your stereotype librarian. You know, things have changed. We can do technology things. We can actually help you. And so just to be able to communicate the ways in which you can help and then maybe show PubMed. I know, like, something like that was how I usually approached those sessions.
0: Yeah, and that's that's a great point because ideally you have an hour yeah. or so to give a, give a class, right? But many times, if we're lucky, we get invited mm-hmm. and they're like, oh, so you have 10 minutes mm-hmm. or maybe 15, you know, if nobody asks questions. <laughs> At the end of... Mm-hmm some other person's presentation to the department and can you just tell us about you know everything that the library offers and how to get to full text and how to do searches yeah. and anything else that you think is important that we should know about in your exactly <laughs> and I'm doing this in 10 minutes yep oh well we're running late and now we only have five minutes before you have to You only have five minutes, and you're like, okay.
1: Yeah, so it's important to get your elevator speech Mm -hmm. down and be able to do it and at least make it memorable because if you do, they'll come back to you and they'll find you again, which I think is good. The nurses were always good because uh, where I used to work, the nurses were heavily involved in research, and were doing a lot of EBP, quality improvement, Mm -hmm. and other nursing research. And I found that they often, once they realized that I could help, would give me more time. So that was nice. I sort of had a standing engagement with nurses to teach them about PubMed.
0: Yeah, nurses actually are really good about that. It used to be that they, it seems like they didn't used to be as connected to the library. But with, like you said, research, nursing-centered research and EBP and things like that, there's there's a pretty high demand with nurses, and nurses are pretty savvy about searching and knowing about databases, even before you talk mm-hmm. to them about databases. Yeah,
1: I had a group of nurses making up making up their own MeSH terms and telling me what the MeSH terms should be. So that was something we had to cover.
0: Was it crabs?
1: <laughs> it wasn't crabs. Yeah. Um. Some of the fun things I did for nurses and other clinicians, I remember, was... If I only had a few minutes, I would show them how to make search alerts on a journal or get table of content alerts mm-hmm. in PubMed on the journals that they followed, and I think they found that really helpful. I know that was a request I got a lot,
0: yeah, I'm trying to think of the of the big thing that nurses would ask me about I think probably the the biggest question I would get is. What should they search besides CINAHL? Because a lot of them learned mm-hmm. to search CINAHL when yeah. they were in school. And some of them were aware of PubMed but didn't feel comfortable with PubMed or um, were so used to CINAHL they just didn't know where else to look.
1: Mm-hmm. Yeah, they learned CINAHL all throughout school and mm-hmm. then get launched into research and they just have CINAHL, but there's so much more out there. So like you, like in my my former workplace...
0: Predominantly, my um, my instruction were to graduate medical education level things. So I was doing instruction to residents, to physicians, to nurses, to other staff. But mm-hmm. um, in my n- current workplace, there's that, but there's also a lot more researchers. Mm-hmm. So some of those are a little bit different because... It's less the clinical side of searching and instruction and more the research oriented. So, like, for example, they're much more interested in some of the hard science, like the, you know, translational science side of things, as opposed to kind of the end result with clinical research.
1: Mm -hmm. So how did that change your approach?
0: Well, one of the things I've realized is I have to be much more aware of some of the databases that I don't use as much, like Scopus or... um, I mean, I use Web of Science, but I've never really concentrated on the the side of Web of Science that's more the conference proceedings and, you know, early research type things. Mm. And again, you know... With clinical, it's it's mostly humans, right? Um, With a lot of other research, it's more animal-based studies. And, like, I would do animal-based searches in my previous workplaces, but it's a little more animal-focused now than it used to be. Interesting. Getting used to some of the instruction and learning it if there are resources that are specific for animal Hmm.
1: information.
0: And then learning them well enough to be able to teach about them.
1: I've transitioned and over the pandemic too so I think we can talk about pandemic teaching or virtual teaching Mm -hmm. but I transitioned from that job to a more traditional academic job where I teach now undergrads, grads, doctoral students in the health professions and everything's changed so I think it would be good to talk about that. Yeah how has that changed for you? Well well first I let's talk about the pandemic. I, I think I liked virtual teaching because I didn't have to go anywhere or or wear pants, but <laughs> but also it was really kind of a disaster because you, you could never tell if anyone was engaged and you could try to engage them and you'd get some people who engaged, but inevitably there were, were people who were just never going to answer the question or turn their mic on or Or go on the Padlet or whatever tool you had set up for engagement. I mean, so there were parts of virtual teaching that I think were very frustrating for everybody. Did you do any virtual teaching? It was interesting because in my previous workplace, we had
0: limited options for virtual engagement like that Mm -hmm. because of network security issues. Mm. And so for that reason, it was pretty limited what I did. Um, and even when we did like Zoom or Teams or whatever platform we were able to use, it was pretty basic in what we could do, um, again, because of some network security things. So Mm. for that reason, we didn't have a lot of... a a lot of demand for virtual things. We still had demand for Mm. in-person and it would just be distanced. And so I see, and and we would give them the option. We're like, you know, we, you know, you don't have to break it out into smaller groups to meet the requirements during the pandemic of, you know, smaller, smaller groups, um, larger rooms, whatever. Mm -hmm. But there was a, there was a lot of people that were like, no, it's just so much trouble to do it virtually. We'd rather do it in person. I'm like,
1: okay. So you had to do it. Yeah. And,
0: you know, we, we even gave them options. So, like, we'll record something and you can play it at a later, you know, asynchronous type things. And I don't know if it was just kind of the culture, the environment, um, tech issues or what. But it it wasn't that big of a thing. And you're right. Like, Getting engaged participants in that setting is really challenging because, I mean, I know what I'm like when I'm doing webinars. I'm usually multitasking. Mm. Oh, guilty. So I expect most people who are listening to anything that I do virtually are also multitasking. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and if I get anybody who seems even partially engaged, whether it's in chat or, un- mm-hmm. you know, unmuting themselves or whatever, it's, it seems like a real win because i know how i am Mm -hmm. i learned a lot of bad habits because like you said you know you don't always have to have your camera on and if you do they can't necessarily see everything that you're doing and if you're looking at a screen you look engaged but you could not be looking at
1: (laughs) don't tell anybody my secrets presenter (laughs) or anything you know you could be reading who knows what Who knows what you have to look at your eye movements look engaged
0: (laughs) Yeah, it's like, oh, look, somebody's paying attention. You're like, no, I'm just reading the uh, Washington Post. Or um,
1: I'm always grateful for the students who do answer and, the, you know, the professors who speak up. And I appreciate those people. So I try to reciprocate. But, yeah, it's tough. It's hard. Mm-hmm.
0: Uh, Plus, the content that we usually teach is not... All that exciting to a lot of folks. I, I know. mean, let's be realistic.
1: I think it's incredibly exciting, but this is true. <laughs> People don't
0: find mesh as exciting as
1: we do. What? <laughs> Although I, I will have to say that I have to credit the asynchronous part of the pandemic teaching trend that helped me start my YouTube channel because I had a couple professors ask me for a session that I recorded. And they could put in blackboard or canvas or whatever it was. And so I would record the session and I'm like, where am I gonna post this? Well I'll just put it on YouTube. And I was like, Oh, I can put things on YouTube and that's when I really started doing it. So I, I guess I have to Oh, so that's what credit it. That's what pushed you to do yeah, it. Yeah, I was like, I can do this. And I, and there's like so many tools you can do it with and you can be really creative or not creative at all, or you can just you can do exactly what you wanna do and that's pretty awesome.
0: I want to ask you something about your two YouTube videos and feel free to edit this out later if, if you don't want to go into this, but when you do your five minute Friday videos, do you go in with a plan and you kind of script things out or do you just start doing something and then try to keep it to five minutes? (laughs) Yeah.
1: A little bit of both. So a couple of the things, the PubMed playlist and the searching school, I scripted out. Uh, It took me weeks, months to put together. And then for the five-minute Fridays, I just started deciding that I'm going to do this one task. I'm I'm going to do a run-through of the task, make sure it works. But then I usually just start recording and narrating. And that's nice because it saves me a lot of time because I don't have to write a script. Although, ideally, I should be writing scripts anyway and using them as captions, because we all know YouTube's captions aren't great. But, yeah, mostly I just decide on a task, make sure it's going to work out, and uh, try to record it.
0: Do you do things with the thought of accessibility? Like, you mentioned the captions, so I'm thinking about how some there are certain standards for accessibility, like having captions on, or, you know, having what's the, it's the, what the government 508 yeah. standard or whatever it is that, you know, you, you have a certain amount of contrast yes. that, you know, you compensate for color blindness and things like that.
1: I am really mindful of those things because I have bad vision. And so when things aren't high contrast, I am not pleased. So you'll notice that most of my stuff is really high contrast colors and fonts. I just use Arial Black. I don't use any other fonts. I use Arial Black. Um, I do check the captions occasionally to make sure that they are fairly accessible. And then the other thing that I, this is jumping back to the pandemic, not my YouTube channel exactly, but in PowerPoint, when you present, you can present with captions. So even if your Zoom does captions, your PowerPoint can. And so when I first started doing a lot of virtual teaching, I was presenting with captions in PowerPoint. And I had multiple people tell me how much they appreciated that uh, it's a really great tool actually in PowerPoint and so if I'm on a group where I'm not sure the event will be captioned or I don't have control over the captions I'll still use the PowerPoint captions
0: oh, that's a good idea
1: I don't think I've ever really
0: considered it in that in that way,
1: but that's a really good idea to do it might not get it right sometimes it, it's pretty wrong but it's enough that the listener can mm-hmm. probably understand I don't use that in the class in a live classroom though I think it's too distracting but maybe I should consider it. Yeah, what uh, what accessibility things do you think about when you're teaching? So, um
0: I have a family member who is colorblind, and so I've always mm-hmm. kind of in the back of my mind thought about my color choices. And can you see things and I, and I'm like you, a big fan of high contrast just because mm-hmm. Oftentimes, you may be in a larger room and you may not have good distance. And you know, it's like <laughs> it's like any time you go to the eye doctor, right? Sometimes you have to find the right spot in order to see the see the letters. Um, even if you've mm-hmm. got corrected eye vision. I think about that. And I'm trying to be more mindful of talking through what I'm doing as I do it. Mm -hmm. So it's not just show, I'm show and tell. And I think that becomes really important with some of the live demos that you do as part of instruction is, Mm -hmm. you know, not just moving a mouse and saying, okay, next, you know, we're going to put in the search box, blah, 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 whatever, you know, I say, okay, now I'm going up to the search box, and I'm typing in this. And if you want to, like, for example, in PubMed, underneath the search box, there is the link to the advanced page. And, you know, so I talk about what I'm doing as I'm doing it. And I I try to do that more, because I think people need both I I know I sometimes need both and so it's Mm -hmm. it's helpful for me when people talk about what they're doing because sometimes you're not always looking at what they're doing either sometimes you're taking notes sometimes you're multitasking and looking at something else so hearing what somebody is doing as they do it I find helpful
1: I agree and I started doing that too because people say oh you're moving too fast. So I always explain what I'm doing. Another thing I did that helped me personally, but also I used in teaching is download uh, cursors for my mouse that are highlighted. So all my mouse cursors are highlighted and I like it a lot. I hope people who have to watch me teach virtually like it too, but that way you can see where the mouse is going Oh, I've never, I've never tried that. Mm-hmm. And I ended up using it for myself all the time. So now, if I have a computer where the mouse isn't highlighted, I'm like, "What's going on?" Uh, it helps a lot. It's neat, and then you just get used to it.
0: Yeah, and I try to be pretty mindful of increasing the size of a screen. Oh
1: yeah, Control Plus Plus.
0: Yep, yep. Because there, there's some resources that. I, gosh, you just need to zoom in quite a bit in order to be able to see. I mean, I zoom in when I'm just doing a search in them because I don't think that their font size, their default font size is big enough. I agree. And, you know, partially that could be me getting older. Mm. But I think also there's kind of the race to the bottom of putting smaller font sizes on websites, like having huge photos, huge fonts, and then teeny tiny Mm -hmm. icons and small I've definitely noticed that and there's no in there's no nice in between
1: today I saw a website that was yellow with brown text (laughs) I was like come on do better that's terrible yeah it was pretty bad so I yeah I uh, for me too I I always do increase the screen size when I can Well, the next thing I wanted to talk about was some of the things that I've done in the classroom because my current job requires a lot more teaching and I just had to jump in feet first and learn to do classroom stuff and learn to do it hopefully well. So, yeah, I wanted to talk about some of that.
0: How many classes do you teach? (laughs)
1: Like 80. It was a semester or a year. It was a lot. And usually there are one, there are usually one visit, but sometimes for the freshman seminars, I would go back for multiple visits. And so, yeah, let me talk about library orientations, because a lot of times I get people saying, we want to bring the class to the library, we want a library orientation. That would be a uh, freshman seminar, but also just any class that hasn't really had exposure to the library. So one of the things I noticed right away is kids, students aren't all that engaged unless you help them be engaged. So some of the things I've done for orientations um, included a live scavenger hunt, and I borrowed this from one of my colleagues. So we would um, open up a Padlet, which is padlet.com or something. I'll look Mm it. I'll put it in the show notes and divide the class into groups. Everybody would be in a group, and then each group would have a column on the Padlet with Uh, questions, and then they'd have to go do a real scavenger hunt around the library and find things like, oh, a children's book, or the reference desk, or where are the archives, where's the coffee, where can you make copies, Um, that kind of thing. And they could either take a picture or just post the answer. One of the things that was difficult about this exercise, although I think the students liked it and learned more about the library, more than I certainly had as a freshman, was that it didn't take very long. So by the end of 10 minutes, I had to figure out what to do for the rest of the class. (laughs) Yeah. So what did you end up doing? Probably talking about kind of the research projects they're going to be doing and where they might start to find research or evaluate sources. So I would kind of jump ahead a little bit if I had to. Um, And then Once our library was under renovation, the live scavenger hunt didn't work anymore, so I had to figure out another method, and I think I saw it on Twitter, but I might have just seen it on the internet, and it was called the Cephalonian method. So what you do as an instructor is see how many people are in your class, and then you can print out some questions or write them on index cards, and they can be sassy, they can be funny, they can have attitude. That's part of the fun. So, like... um, I'm really tired and I need my coffee. Where's the coffee shop? Or, you know, my roommate's (laughs) awful. I need a quiet place to study. Just different things. And so you pass these questions out and you have to explain to the class when they're coming in, we're going to use these cards in a minute. Just hold on to your card. And so then you start off by introducing yourself. But then you say, we're going to go around the room and you're going to ask the questions on your card. And they would. And you could have them tell you something else too, like my name is... Um, Brad and I had pancakes for breakfast or something like that. So just something to get them talking to you because I think a lot of the time just shyness is part of the problem or if not shyness just like I don't really care right now. So they would mm-hmm. ask the questions we would go over it together as a class or like maybe guess guess where you might find that information and then go over it together at the end. So that was kind of fun, and I think it worked really well. Oh, and just to give credit where it's due, this method, the Cephalonian method of passing out the questions and having them ask, was done at the University of Cardiff in Wales, I think. And I won't name the librarians because I don't remember, but we'll put it in the show notes. Okay. So that was a really good orientation method for me.
0: That's... I. I need to file that away. I've not I've not tried that before. That sounds like a really good way to get engagement though.
1: Yeah. I have been
0: the answer to a scavenger hunt for orientation. Oh, really? Yeah. Mm-hmm. So, uh in my previous workplace, if if you're at all familiar with graduate medical education, July is a critical month because that's when all the new mm-hmm. doctors come. Yeah. Come in. Mm-hmm. and so we would often get a really high demand for orientations in early July, mid-July, and into August depending on the department and how how fast they wanted their folks to be to get an orientation. And I was a clinical librarian for pediatrics, and so we had a scheduled orientation set up for the new interns coming in and anybody else who wanted to get a refresher that might have forgotten things from when they did it. And before we did that, they had their own orientation to the workplace. So as part of their orientation to the workplace, they had a scavenger hunt and <sighs> I was, They were supposed to discover where different departments were, um, some of the key people that they may need to encounter at a later point, get an introduction. So, one day, this was like right after July 4th, so like the first week of July, and I'm sitting at the reference desk, and these people come in, and I see them talk to the circulation tech, library tech at the front desk. And she points over to me, and I'm like, Oh, I, I see this group come in. I'm like, oh, Okay, are they all going to be asking for search help? What's going on there? Like, we're looking for Tracy, and I'm like, Okay, hi, I'm Tracy. And they're like, Okay, you have to sign this, we have to take a picture with you, and you have to sign that we actually found you. I'm like, What, what, <laughs> you have to take a picture with me? They're like, Yeah. we gotta hurry up you know hurry up we're almost done you're the last person on our scavenger hunt and we're about to win Mm -hmm. and i'm like what (laughs) so and then as they're as they're kind of explaining this to me i see this other group come in and they're like they look over and they're like oh man you beat us to her (laughs) and i'm like what is going on and i turns out like I had this email that I had just not received yet. And because I was at the reference desk, I had not looked at my email in a couple of hours. And one of the attendings that I round with was like, oh, hey, I just want to give you a heads up that um, some of the pediatric interns may be stopping by the library later as we do our orientation and I had just n- not seen that email that's pretty great that
1: they included so, you that's like great. all these
0: people I'm like I I'm I'm part of a what now
1: <laughs> so, I we had that on our scavenger hunt list to take a picture with somebody at the reference desk but I found that just a little bit intrusive and especially if they were really busy so I, I took that off just find the reference desk but they didn't actually have to talk to anybody. yeah so
0: they were instructed they had to prove that they had met me okay and they interpret that as, let's take a selfie with Tracy, the librarian. So you're a superstar. So, I mean, at the time I was like, okay, this is weird. And it's kind of odd that the attending wouldn't give me a heads up. But in the email, they're like, you know, just, I just want them to have proof that they saw you. Whether it's mm-hmm. your signature or, you know, you telling them something that only you would know. That <laughs> I, you know, I know that you would know. That sort of thing. That's so. a
1: little sordid. They were like, no, we got to take a selfie. I'm like, okay. Yeah, so they found you. That's good. They
0: found me. And then they got a little brief five minute here's the library. These are the things you need to know about the library. Our hours are our email is our you know, those 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 critical things. They can learn the other things later. I wondered
1: if a scavenger hunt would work at different levels of education. So it's good to hear that it worked at GME.
0: Yeah, and you know, it's it's funny because I think I think it's pretty telling that it was the pediatric. Oh yeah, residents do. Yeah, it? they have more fun. Inters Don't they have do more it? fun?
1: I thought they had more fun. I think they do. They seem to have more <laughs> fun. They have toys. <laughs> they have <own> toys. Yeah, <laughs> they do. A
0: lot of them. A lot of them will sometimes have a toy in their pocket or their little lanyards um, or their ID clips will often be, you know, toy oriented in some yeah.
1: way. Yeah, yeah. I've, I've, um, that Twitter, YouTube. Twitter go on YouTube, Dr. Do- Dr. Glockenflucken. He always makes fun mm-hmm. of the pediatric people because he like wears a unicorn horn or something or like
0: <laughs> You know, I would I was telling a coworker the other day, they had asked her like, What's some fun things that are like medical, you know, research or, you know, kind of science humor? And I was like, Okay, well if you're not familiar with Dr. Glockenflucken, however <laughs> it's pronounced, I'm like you should check him out. <laughs> yeah, and they, they're like, okay, okay. And the yeah. And so, um, this was a couple of weeks ago, and then I actually ran into her, a couple of days ago, and she was like, "That is hilarious. <laughs> that is so accurate. Mm-hmm. It's so funny." And I was like, "It really is accurate. Mm-hmm. Like, if you, if you are around some of those, uh, specialists." The, they're they're kind of scary accurate sometimes i mean there's stereotypes for a reason right Right.
1: the, the er guy's always in a bike helmet i think mm-hmm. yeah or that or the ortho person yeah. yeah they're always in a bike
0: well the orthos the ortho guy is very much he's kind of you can tell he's a jock
1: yeah yeah you know, he's 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 sporty Which i disagree with that perception of orthopedists <laughs> no maybe not i don't know <laughs> yeah that that is a good channel so our listeners if you haven't checked him out yet check out dr glaucon Flecken, um a spoof like a yeah, parody I'll, I'll, we'll link to it yeah, on the show notes it's really funny and very perceptive and sometimes very accurately depressing because he talks about like health health he's on he's on tiktok In, i think he started on oh TikTok. yeah oh that's right you're right gosh I'm so old. Yeah. I'm so very, very old. That brings up something for
0: instruction. Do you ever use social media as part of your instruction?
1: Interesting. No, Um, I started off explaining subject headings as hashtags, like you would use a hashtag on Instagram. And I just got these blank stares, and I'm thinking, I don't think they're using Instagram <laughs> anymore. I think it's TikTok. And then I just decided to take that out entirely. I'm not going to talk about hashtags on social media. And then I really don't even teach subject headings unless they're at a a graduate level. So I have not used social media for instruction. Do do you have a case for that? No,
0: I, I mean, I've, I've tried that before and I, I've seen where instruction, like at, Classes have used social media in various mm-hmm. ways, whether it's Twitter um, as part of like their coursework type mm-hmm. things, but I've never been directly involved in that, and I've never tried to do engagement outside of library instruction Through social media? Not
1: really, no. I can't think of a reason for that, that I've used it. Some of the tools that I have used, like I I mentioned Padlet earlier, and one tool I've recently discovered these aren't social media, but just tools for instruction Slido, and that's something you can put into your Google Slides. um, And it lets users take a poll a little bit easier than some of the other polling software. And it's fun because you can put, like, a, a Likert scale of faces, the faces scale, sad to happy. <laughs> so you can ask people how they're feeling <laughs> about whatever. So that's been a fun tool, and there are free versions, and you get, like, three three f- free surveys. And then another one I used, um, if your institution has Microsoft and has Forms, then I found the Forms to be really great for doing classroom exercises so if a, if a teacher's really hell-bent on us doing some sort of citation something, style, instruction, then I might make a form and the students will do an exercise and, and fill out some questions on the form and then we get their answers and blah, blah, blah. So I've used forms for that. I've used forms for source evaluation, too. So sometimes I would break the students up into groups and give them everything from the medical medium who's this... Um, pseudoscience quack selling celery juice stuff to Medline Plus or something more reputable and then have the students evaluate their their site and um, maybe they would either put their answer into the form, talk about why it's credible or not. And that worked really well. So that brings up an interesting question. Do you
0: do assessment? of your instruction. Like do you do surveys, like a pre and post test type thing? Do you get evaluated? I on do any of that as part of your
1: Yeah. So at my previous job, I there was no assessment whatsoever. And um I would just do my own survey uh for certain groups like the bigger groups or the longer classes, I would send out a survey either with a QR code or a link and have them give me feedback just so I kinda knew where I stood and how I was progressing and if people actually enjoyed it or not. So that was good. And then now uh, we do something similar, but we are evaluated on our teaching because it's part of our promotion and tenure package. So in addition to my survey results, I also get observed every semester, basically, so that I can be judged on my teaching,
0: (laughs) So, so that I can get
1: some feedback on my teaching. And that's been useful as well. How about you, Tracy?
0: I, in the past, have not been really involved in any kind of assessments either before or after. it's if there has been something, it's been pretty limited, it's been because of that particular group that they do that, or um, it's part of a course in which each lecture is given a, an assessment. But in my current workplace, it's it's more it's more formalized in that every teaching session, gets in a survey afterwards and hopefully you get does it go feedback. to you or
1: does it go to but
0: i'm not in i've never been on the tenure track academic thing to be assessed like you're talking mm. about where you know you would be as where you would have to be observed and and graded for yeah, lack of a better all description. Yeah, it goes into your
1: packet when you go up for promotion or tenure. I think people are generally pretty supportive and kind about it. So it's meant to help people be better, not to make them feel shitty. So does the feedback go to you or does the feedback go to someone in your library? There
0: is a team within the library that is part of that. I think it is, I don't know if it's de-identified and kind of uh, mm, grouped or if it's individualized, I think it's it's more based on general instruction. It's it's not personal and it's not like you get a report that, you know, your grade for this class was... Your, your survey response for this class mm-hmm. was X and this is what they had to say kind of thing. I think it's more of an aggregate of all
1: the classes done
0: for this sort of thing.
1: That's kind of nice. It's kind of nice because we know we all... I think we all have disasters from time to time, so it's good that you don't feel singled out on any one class. Yeah, and you know, sometimes things
0: just go mm-hmm. wrong. You know, or sometimes it's just for whatever reason,
1: you don't you don't have a rapport
0: with the people you're teaching, and mm-hmm. so it just doesn't work well.
1: Yeah, that's happened. And I think in my more traditional setting now, I do have to be more of a disciplinarian, not 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 in a bad way, but you know, you never have to ask physicians to stop talking and pay attention. <laughs> but you sometimes do with undergrads. Yeah, I've never had to
0: tell people to stop talking. Yeah. I have had them fall asleep. Yeah. But honestly <laughs> Knowing what I know about residencies, yeah, if my voice puts you to sleep and that's you what, have an hour nap. That's go what for I say to it. Too, I... I'm not I'm not gonna judge you. I'm not gonna go tell on No I'm not
1: offended by it. That's an hour
0: well spent in my I've been a
1: sleeper in a class before, I'm sure, so they get a pass from me. what are some of the things you've done to help people feel comfortable with you as an instructor or a teacher? I have and especially when it comes
0: comes to well, let me let me restart. One of the things I've tried to do when I have given class instruction to, say, a group of residents that are all the same specialty or whatever, same class. Oftentimes they're there without an attending or any staff mm-hmm. person. It's just them and myself and maybe my coworker. I often would do in my former workplace. I would often do presentation, library instruction, orientations in tandem with with a coworker. We would take certain sections. We would both talk. And so it was and usually unscripted. I mean, we knew what we would talk about, Mm -hmm. but it was usually unscripted. So it was usually pretty small groups like that. And one of the things that we started to explicitly state at the beginning when we introduced ourselves is, as corny as it sounds, that Mm -hmm. it was a safe space. That they could ask anything of us and we would try to answer. And it... It was interesting because I think that was helpful in a lot of ways because there was a couple of times where it became like we ended up not doing what we had planned to do with the presentation and instruction, but it was a very, very productive time spent with those residents because we got talking about things that they care about right. and we learned a lot from them on how we could better serve them as well as some collection right. development ideas. And it worked out really well in that case because we were looking to spend some oh. last-minute collection development money and we yeah. didn't really know what to buy. And they were like, oh, well, we have these books we would like you to buy. And we're like, hey, funny, funny timing, but we actually have about that much oh, money to spend. Good. So guess what you're getting? You're getting those books you want. Super. Um, so so one of the things is, is trying to make it a place where – they should feel comfortable to ask questions if they have questions and to stop and ask questions in the middle of the orientation or instruction mm-hmm. you know, as they come up and to just be real about it and be like, you know, I, I get that this isn't interesting to you probably, but it should be because it's going to matter at some point. And when it does matter, hopefully you'll remember some of this. And if you don't remember any of this, hopefully you'll re- at least right. remember us and we'll come reach yeah. out and touch base with us again when you need us. But just making it a space where it's okay for them to ask questions and to to make them aware that we're not going to tell on them, you know, that they're not going to, we're not assessing them in any way other than, you know, figuring out for ourselves, do we need to adjust what we present and how we present things? Or do we need to change the content based on the questions we've, been asked, things like that. Yeah.
1: You can, it can help you going forward. Yeah. That makes me think, well, when I mentioned the Mm -hmm. Cephalonian method, I think the whole point of that is to break the ice for the shy people to get them to ask their own questions and to feel that it's a place where they can ask questions. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And then one of the things that I've done is, and, you know, I know they're not going to remember probably what I teach, but I say, if you need to find me If you want to find me when you're ready, this is where you can find me. So, yeah, hopefully that just they know that you're there when they need you because they probably don't need you right now. But they might need you in two weeks or something.
0: And that's one of the that's one of the tough things because we've oftentimes gotten feedback of, man, I wish we had heard about this early on. You know, why aren't Mm -hmm. you involved in our orientation at the very beginning? And it's like you have to hear so many things and they only, you know, Mm -hmm. give us five minutes and then they cut Mm -hmm. our five minutes and, you know, would it be nice if we got multiple touch points with them from beginning to the end? Sure. It's but not oftentimes, the case. you either get them right when they absolutely need you or at a point where it doesn't matter to them yet. And so they don't really have buy in because they don't see where it's going to be right. important to
1: them. Right. And that's, and then, but then they realize maybe later, oh yeah, but we have a librarian. I think we have a librarian. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Wait. We have a library here. Like, oh, like yeah, you can actually yeah, get your you articles without Google. You have had it for f-
0: the whole four years that you've been in residency. You've had access right. to the library,
1: and, and they're all and they're all sitting yeah. there using Google Scholar and saying, "I can't get to this article. Maybe I'll go on ResearchGate." <laughs> if they even got to Google Scholar, they probably
0: started and stopped at yeah, up to date. Oh, yeah.
1: True. Well, they have to. Re- don't doesn't up to date usually come through the library? It's funded in part by a library. Yeah, but they don't
0: know that. Many times they have no idea that it's a library yeah. resource. And in some cases, it's not a library right. resource. In some libraries, it's, it's, it's
1: part of their thing. You know, or something. Yeah.
0: Thing. It's part of the patient record oh, yeah. or it's part Isn't of it? EMR right. or EHR.
1: Some of the things that I do to help the students feel comfortable with me, especially now that I'm working more with undergraduates, is if I'm in a library classroom, which we're really fortunate to have a classroom, but it did not have a classroom before, so we were like teaching with no space, Uh, but now I have space, and so if I can, I'll turn on some music, and I found that some really nice music, like non-offensive, really neutral music is lo-fi hip-hop. There's a lo-fi hip-hop channel on YouTube. Actually, there's a lot, so I'll turn that on just really lowly in the background and when students come in, and I've had a couple students comment on that, so... That makes me happy because it just creates a more welcoming environment in a cold, dark classroom in the basement. Mm-hmm. Um, and then the other thing I th- I've noticed. That's a really good idea. Yeah, and I like it too. And then if they have an activity where they have five or ten minutes to work on the activity, I'll turn it back on. Or turn on, you know, YouTube has a wealth of puppy timers and kitty cat timers. Yeah, and they like that too. <laughs> So, if you have a ten minute activity, just like search cat timer, kitten timer, and there some, and it's really cute. And then maybe I'm the only one who is really excited about it, but I just think it's really fun.
0: Oh, that's really sweet though. That's a really good idea. And I really like the idea of of having some music in a classroom, but I think I think a lot of people should consider that for their webinars and online training things because how many times do you log into a webinar? right? and there's yeah. no sound and you're like is it is it me am I not connected is it something with my laptop that's yeah. not working that my sound isn't that's working that's a good point and it's just everybody's muted and they're waiting until right at the top of the <laughs> hour or a couple of minutes after and nobody's talking and you don't know what I mean there's nothing in the chat box sometimes the chat box is disengaged uh-huh. entirely and you're just like yeah. Could you not just have, like, something going on in the background? You know, whatever it might be. May I
1: suggest lo-fi (laughs) hip-hop? At least the one on YouTube, the channels on YouTube, they tend to be wordless. So there's no words. There's no, like, you know, imagery. So I like that. Yeah, that's my suggestion. And one more thing. If nothing else, you get a a sound check. That's right. If you do need to use a video later, at least you know your system's working. And sometimes I'll show videos. Uh, The other thing I've noticed with younger students is that they don't know what to call me, and and I'm not really Professor Price. I mean, they can, and some people will call me Professor Price, but I usually just break the ice right off the bat and say, I'm Carrie Price. You can call me Miss Price, Miss Carrie, or Carrie. I really, you know, I don't say I don't care, but it mm-hmm. doesn't matter to me how you want to address me, do what you're comfortable with. And then I just get so tickled pink how long- I get tickled pink when somebody calls me Miss Carrie. I just think it's the sweetest thing. That's really. But let cute. them make the decision on how, what they want to call me, and certainly not Doctor or Professor Price, because number one, I'm not a doctor, but I'm also not really a professor. So, yeah, yeah, that's what I do.
0: That's a, that's a good that's a good point to make in introduction is what you prefer to be called, and you know, also mention pronouns.
1: Yeah, yeah, that too is increasingly important. Over a couple years ago, I think. So I do try to... Sometimes I forget, but I try to do that, too. Yeah,
0: and I I try to... I first started... Speaking of using the pronouns, I started putting it in, gosh, years ago now, in my um, email signature. Because... Mm -hmm, Me, too. The number of times I got Mr. Shields, because Mm -hmm. oh your name could be Mm -hmm. male or female, and I got so tired of it. So in my... My email signature I started putting Ms and my pronouns she her. Just to be clear, please don't call me Mrs. because that's the, <laughs> another annoyance. And yeah. in my in my old workplace, being called ma'am was very prevalent. And I really oh. like, please, oh, no, like, call me Tracy. Yeah. You can call me Tracy. Please don't say ma'am. And that that was yeah, just I don't a cultural think I'd thing. Like that. You know? But mm-hmm. yeah, anything to kinda get
1: get them comfortable that helps yeah like you you want them to see you as a partner or a Mm -hmm. person not 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 necessarily a peer but somebody they can talk to or you know somebody that's there to help with the struggle because I think of myself at that age and I had no clue no clue so just the fact that I'm trying to put myself on that level Mm -hmm. to help them understand what a library is for and why there are librarians at your university (laughs) yeah that's a start
0: that's a big hurdle in itself though is there are there any teaching or training things that you've
1: wanted to try but you've never gone around to i know some of my colleagues do this really fantastic uh let's say a number of really fantastic exercises where students will look at each other's citations or engage with each other or Come to class prepared with something that the librarian has has sent them ahead of time. I've never gotten to that point. I've never, I mean, I might might do like a think-pair-share kind of exercise, but typically I'm not having them prepare before class. I don't know if that's something I would do or not. What about you? I think that would be interesting to try. I've
0: never Mm -hmm. really done it more because oftentimes I've not had the time to prepare Mm -hmm. for that. Even with scheduled instruction, there's not always enough lead time to really give that, and you may not know who is going to be attending to that. That's true. That's true. It's not really a
1: setting for that. Well, I have I have one parting story. That's one of my favorite stories, but it's just a little story. And that is, I remember working with nurses once, and I would take some questions off the cuff and try to do some of their searches uh, in front of them, and and they had questions about shift work, and I went to PubMed. And I typed in shit work and <laughs> I, I think we got some results, but then I realized it. But I thought it was so funny because I made a big typo, but it was pretty cute.
0: I, I have, I have unfortunately had many typos <laughs> happen when I am typing in front during mm-hmm. a demo. Probably the most memorable one was pubic health. <laughs> instead of public health i'm afraid of that one too and it came up with a surprising number of results and so i'm keep going on and i hear a couple of snickers <laughs> and it's like it's not that funny you know i mean granted there seems to be about a lot of sexual health. health thing going In this set of results, but and then I looked up and I, you know, I go to show them like the advanced page and and how it maps, and then I was like, "Whoa, what's happening here?"
1: Oh, Tracy, (laughs) sorry, you might not have ever known that this was your real introduction to crabs.
0: (laughs) (laughs) I know, I missed it
1: entirely. I missed it entirely. Oh, that's (laughs) well. Here's some more fun. Here's some more fun teaching experiences in both of our futures. This podcast was produced by myself and Tracy Shields, audio edited by myself. With show notes by Tracy Shields and transcriptions by Jan Monet. Find us on Twitter at medlibs underscore miss, or email us at medlibsmiscellany at gmail.com. You can find Tracy on Twitter at TC Shields. You can find me, Carrie, on Twitter at CarriePrice78. Our theme music is Nerdy and Quirky by Music Town on Pixabay. Thanks for joining us. We'll see you next time.